We, uh, this morning, are continuing in our teaching series through the book of 2 Samuel. If you've been following with us, either online or in person, uh, you realize that we are now into the part of the book where things have kind of gotten out, out of hand in a certain way. That the, the sinfulness and brokenness of David has led to a, a, an unleashing of evil, as it were, and brokenness throughout his whole royal family and has affected all of Israel in a way. So David becomes king. David is God's chosen king. David lives what in what appears to be and what seems to be uh, a deep and meaningful connection to God. But in a moment, we begin to see the cracks in David as he is consolidating power for himself through the abuse uh, of women and ultimately leads to David beginning to place his power and his trust in his own authority, uh, and causes him in many ways to step way over the line. We know the story of Bathsheba, which ultimately leads to the story of Uriah's murder by David, or planned murder by David, to cover up all uh, that has happened to him. And of course, the prophet Nathan comes to David with the word from God, saying, what you've done has, has unleashed all kinds of evil into the world, and when we were last together in 2 Samuel, we talked about some of the realities of the generational, generational drip and current and, and, and ripples of sin, uh, whether it's in the biblical sense from the beginning of humanity all the way till now, or in a more personal sense in our own families of origin, and how we can only really truly overcome and experience victory uh, in that, through the rightful king who is Jesus. That he welcomes us into his family and in so doing releases us from the guilt of our family of origin, be that our genetic family of origin or the truth of broken and rebellious humanity. We're about to enter into the part of the story of Second Samuel. It's often called the rebellion of Absalom or Absalom's rebellion. Uh, It covers about five chapters, and so we're going to purposely zoom out over these next couple of weeks. Have you ever been in uh, one of those corn mazes before? Have you ever done that, right? And the ones that are are like uh, over the top can be somewhat terrifying at moments that you may never get out of these stalks of corn. And considering what life might be like for 5, 10, 15, 20 years in in a uh, cornfield is depressing. Uh, but they always show you like the aerial picture, right? And it seems like this, is, this all makes sense. When you're in the throes of it, you're not sure you'll ever make it out. This is one of those passages of scriptures where if we get too intent on seeing all of the details, we'll miss the bigger narrative truth that is happening in this story and how it points us really to uh, identifying who is the rightful king and who people like us should truly follow. So, Uh, Today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 15. We are not going to pause to read them. I would encourage you to to have your your copy of the scriptures open. and You can follow along as I sort of retell the story. Uh, Or if you'd rather just kind of engage with the story, that's fantastic too. Read it uh, later this week and uh, and be engaged with it. So, uh, the last we left the story, Absalom had murdered his brother Amnon. Because Amnon had acted uh, in a horrific way towards uh, Absalom's sister Tamar, who was also Amnon's half-sister. And he had 
uh, raped her and, and committed incest with her and then kind of discarded her uh, like garbage, as it were. And Absalom had, had held in that bitterness and had waited close to two years and, and then enacted vengeance on Amnon and killed him. And after that, uh, Absalom had kind of left the family fold, as it were, and, and found refuge somewhere else. And really was, was elsewhere for about two years. And that's where the story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 14, uh, where Absalom now, in somehow or some way, is uh, using Joab. And if you're familiar with Joab, Joab is the leader of the army under King David. And he's using Joab to try to get back into the kingdom of Israel and back in good graces with David. Uh, and so Joab uh, agrees to this, and he, Joab uses uh, a woman from the, the area of Tekoa to tell a story that will pull on the heartstrings of King David and then sort of do a bait and switch and say, who I'm really talking about is your son Absalom. Why won't you show kindness to him? And David relents and allows Absalom to come back. And then he's back for a while. And eventually, again, through using Joab, he gets an audience with David. Uh, and he bows before David and, and confesses, as it were. And David kisses him, which is symbolic of receiving him back into the family. And then over time, Absalom begins to build up uh, significant means. He gathers horses, and he gathers men uh, and chariots, a sort of army that he is forming. And um, Absalom begins to, to kind of make his base at the city gates. And at the city gates is where much of kind of the judicial reality of the country would happen. And so people would be coming from all over the territory of Israel, and it was at the city gates where sort of their cases would be heard or would at least be processed and moved forward to the face of the king. And Absalom sets up camp there and is intercepting all of these people. He's sowing seeds of discord and division amongst them, basically saying the king doesn't care about you, but I do. And if I had authority, I would rule in your favor, but this king would never do that. And the story tells us in chapter 15 that the hearts of the people of Israel were turned from David to Absalom. And so eventually Absalom goes to David and asks if he can be released from the confines of Jerusalem to go to Hebron so that he can worship God there. But really what he's planning to do is stage what amounts to a hostile takeover of the kingdom of Israel. Hebron is a place where kings are anointed. It's a place where David was anointed. And as he's about to head out to Hebron, Absalom sends messengers out to all parts of Israel. It says, uh, in days, Absalom will be anointed king over Israel in Hebron. And so all the people gather there and anoint him as king over Israel. David hears about this, gets message about what's going on, and decides he needs to leave Jerusalem because the people are with Absalom. And so as David is preparing to leave Jerusalem, he is, uh, is taking with him a small army, 
but in essence, leaving behind in the city people of significant importance both to him and to the kingdom. And he's doing so for their protection, but also for the stability of the kingdom of God. And at the end of chapter 15, we have a king moving into exile and the son of a king rising from exile to authority over all of Israel through the means of a hostile takeover. Does that make sense? Oh, I should say, do you kind of get the story? Like that's the story of the two chapters. It really doesn't make sense because it's bonkers crazy what's going on here. But this is, this is what's happening in the story. So what I want to suggest to you is there are three contrasts that are happening in this story. And if we can see it from a bigger scale, like I've attempted to tell the story, instead of getting forced down into the specifics of each verse, which of course are important, we'll see these three contrasts, all of which involve Absalom, and typically contrasting Absalom to David himself. And in so doing, I think that it will enlighten us, not as followers of David, but as followers of Jesus, to the significant dangers of either misleading ourselves or being misled by other would-be kings. Does that make sense? So, in essence, what we have here are two plans that are side by side. One is a plan in response. The other is a plan that I think has been ongoing for years and years and years. So you have Absalom's plan to take over power from David. And then at the end of chapter 15, you have David's plan in response to Absalom's rebellion. Now, I cannot fully prove this, but I think the, only, the best way, not the only, the best way to understand what's happening in the text is to understand that Absalom has been planning this rebellion through the whole story. All the way back to even exacting vengeance on his half-brother Amnon for his sister's rape. In essence, when, when Absalom finds out that Amnon has uh, incestually raped his sister Tamar, uh, Absalom says to Tamar, remember this? Don't tell anyone, right? Just don't tell anyone. It'll be okay. And Absalom, I think, is plotting to use this heinous act to usurp Amnon, who was the firstborn son and therefore heir to the throne, and in so doing, cause himself to rise to that position of power. So in the right moment, he exacts vengeance, not because he cares deeply for his sister, but because he sees an opportunity to grab control and to grab power. And then, when it kind of doesn't go exactly how he hopes it will, and he finds himself in exile outside of the family uh, of his birth, the, the royal family, the family of David, he begins to manipulate Joab. And I think we can understand there's a manipulation going on here, because if you read the story, and, and hopefully you will read it later, you do not get the impression that Joab really likes Absalom, Right? And yet it seems like Joab is really working hard for Absalom. And so somehow Absalom is manipulating or using Joab, whether he's telling him that if he doesn't work with him and when he gets to power, 
he's going to put him down or he's going to kill him or he's going to cast him aside or whether he's got some goods on Joab and he's holding them and, and blackmailing him in a way we don't understand. But when, when Joab is successful in convincing the heart and mind of David to receive Absalom back, the story tells us that Absalom consistently tried to talk to Joab and Joab wouldn't even see him. And so eventually, Absalom lights his farm on fire. True story. It happens in there, right? He lights all of his crops on fire. And finally, Joab comes to him and says, I'll do what you want me to do. There's some kind of manipulative relationship going on here. And that lighting those crops on fire, uh, Absalom uses Joab to finally get a face-to-face meeting with David. He's been back in the city walls of Jerusalem, but hasn't even seen the face of his dad, David, yet. And so finally he gets that meeting. He uses it, I think, under false pretenses to sort of humble himself, but not in a real way, to sort of guilt his father into restoring him back. David kisses him, but there's still a brokenness in this relationship. And then we see in Absalom someone who is not just excited and overwhelmed by the restoration he has either achieved or received from his father, but immediately beginning to use that status to plot his rebellion. The very next verses are about him gathering horses and chariots and fighting men, and then standing at the gates, sowing division against his father and discord amongst the people. You know, Absalom is perhaps one of the greatest politicians in all of Scripture. You see, read the things about Absalom later, right? One of the things he says is he was handsome and good-looking, right? Uh, He says that he would go down to the city gates and tell people, no one else understands what you're going through, but I do, right? We're about to go into a campaign season. We will hear that consistently, right? We're going to see people wearing cowboy hats that have never worn them before, and boots that are never, they're going to see people at the Iowa State Fair who maybe even don't know what Iowa is, right? But they're proving that we're all Iowans or New Hampshire or whatever it is. Very political, <clears throat> excuse me, moves by Absalom to try to say sort of, I get you and no one else does and that's why you should believe me. And the people, they fall for it hook, line, and sinker, Right? Unless we think that the Israelites are a bunch of gullible people, we do the same thing, don't we? Uh, We do it for politicians, for certain, right? We will argue with each other and with other people over the next couple of years because somehow we believe that if we elect the right person, things are going to get better. And in so doing, we actually say, Jesus, thanks for being our hope, and we will actually hope in other things, right? We do that. But we also do it in all kinds of other things, in our vocation, in our status, in our acceptance, we believe that there are other people and other things and other systems in this world who can give to us what our heart longs for, and yet God is the only one who can, and we cast him aside. He receives us with a kiss, and we say thanks for that, but we need more. Power, control, authority. See, Absalom's plan, his style of life, as it were, is very self-centered. It's self-centered because it is self-serving. 
His whole plan uses and manipulates other people to accomplish what he wants. It's all about attaining, grabbing, securing power, control, authority, significance, acceptance, security. And it has nothing to do with the lifestyle oriented towards God. And not only is it self-serving, but it's self-empowered, isn't it? It's a long thought through and carefully implemented year-by-year scheme and strategy to achieve what he wants and thinks that he needs. Here's what the story of Absalom's rebellion tells us. That in the fleeting momentary realities of the time, it seems like it's successful. Like it gives him everything he wants. Like he rises to the position, and yet it is extraordinarily fleeting. Because Absalom is not king for years and decades, but only for a chapter or so. Because his scheming and his planning and his self-centered reality ultimately leads to his demise, not to a fullness of life. And in contradiction to Absalom, we have in David, someone in these chapters, obviously a deeply broken human being, we get that, who has caused a whole lot of the crap that he's dealing with right now. And yet we see in him a true repentance and transformation that has turned his heart back towards God. He says some stunning things as he is processing this rebellion. He says, whatever seems... To be good to God, I will live in. In essence, basically saying, if I'm not supposed to be king anymore, I'll be okay with that. Whatever seems right to God, that God's intentions would be more significant than his own dreams and desires. See, David's orientation in life right now, even in devising a plan against the impending rebellion and invasion of Jerusalem by Absalom is very God-centered and not self-centered. Seeking even in the craziness and unknown of an extraordinarily difficult situation to hold on to and find God's plan and God's intention and not impose His own. This is hard, isn't it, church? It's hard, especially in the difficult circumstances of life, to not seize control and go hard for it. And so whereas you have Absalom at the city gates acquiring and manipulating people and sowing discord and division, you have David praying in 2 Samuel chapter 15. He hears that one of his most important counselors, a guy named Ahithophel, has disowned him and joined Absalom's rebellion. Instead of plotting his next move or acquiring the peace to his campaign or effort that will work against that, he pauses and he prays. And his prayer is pretty specific and it's also pretty desperate. He says, God, make his counsel be ineffective. Right? 
that the king, the man of power, who has all of the authority in the kingdom, and who it seems like should just raise up all the armies and stomp this thing down, now says, God, if it is your will that I wouldn't be king anymore, that's better than me imposing my own designs on this life. And as I look and attempt to understand how to combat this reality that is existing in my life, my first go-to is the wisdom and the counsel of God and not my own efforts or even the counsel of others. And so not only is David not self-serving, but God-serving, what we find in the strategy that he begins to put together is that it's actually a strategy that is for the betterment of all of his colleagues, not for himself. Think of a couple of things that he does. He leaves Jerusalem. Now, there's two ways to read this. The first way is he's got to get out of there because he might die, right? And that's fair. That's in there. But there's also something awfully gracious about what he's doing. He's actually attempting to preserve the city from a massive battle that will have all kinds of collateral damage on a city that he knows is important to God, but also filled with people who don't need to be the collateral damage. He'll fight the battle, but it will be on an open plain. And then, to some of the significant people in his life, he says to them, you should stay. You shouldn't have to come with me and put your life in peril, in essence, because of my screw-ups. He says to the priest who's ready to go with him, you need to stay. And he says to, to Hushai, who's a great counselor to him, it would be a burden for me to take you. I can't bear the thought of you being damaged because of this. And you should stay. And he says to this guy, Ittai, who's a foreigner, why on earth would you even come with me? You don't have to be with me. Stay and preserve your own life. That the king is not gathering and demanding that everyone serve him and protect his power, but instead looking out for them and for their own security. This is how a king is supposed to behave in the economy of God. And whereas Absalom is completely working on a self-empowerment plan, strategy, power, assets, David has turned his attention to the power of God. Through prayer, asking for God's power delivered on his behalf. And then also, in somewhat stunning fashion, not only does he tell the priests to stay in Jerusalem, but the priests show up carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Remember what the Ark of the Covenant is? The Ark of the Covenant is the, the container, as it were, it's, it's much more glorious than a container, that, that holds the presence of God. The priests are saying, not only are we coming, but we're taking God's presence with us. And David says, no, the Ark does not come. God is not a four-leaf clover to be rubbed when things get rough. He's not an ultimate trump card that I can play to win a hand. David says, if I find favor in God, he will restore me to this place. I won't use him as a human weapon. Stunning. 
that David wouldn't do this. I think for many of us, we would welcome the ark in our lives' plans, right? And not in the sense that you shouldn't want to worship God and be in God's presence, and not in the sense that in the New Testament reality, the presence of God is with us wherever we want, but in the sense that we like to and sometimes feel entitled to because of our religious efforts, going to church, praying, uh, ordering our life around God, these things, we feel entitled to God's action on our behalf. So we hold tight to the ark because we believe we have earned the right for God to do what we want Him to do. It's a transactional reality, isn't it? God, we do for you, so you do for us. And yet, in the economy of God, it is not transactional. It's a grace-based economy. God does for us because He loves us, not because we have done for Him. And in reverse, God expects from us an offering of worship and of our lives in a gracious way towards Him, not expecting anything in return. David says, much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're about to enter a fiery furnace, we are standing up for God and we know that He can deliver us, but even if He chooses not to, we will worship Him anyway. Does it make sense? But this stance is a radically different stance. And so I pause and I ask us, how do we order our lives? Do we do so in such a way, including our use and perhaps abuse of God and others, to achieve what we think we need and or deserve in life, which almost always includes power, control, significance, or acceptance, or security. And in all of these sort of convoluted ways, use God, use other people to get to where we need to go, or do we have a life that is truly laid down before God, that says, God, I would prefer to be used by you for your glory, because I believe that you are good, And therefore, that your plans and intentions for me are good. Whereas Absalom's plan and order of life led to temporary victory that ultimately was complete and utter destruction and defeat. David's sacrificial system and way of living leads to what appears to be, in the moment, certain defeat. But a couple chapters later is his full restoration to king over all of Israel and the fullness of life that God promises. Jesus said, if you want to be first, you're going to end up last. He says, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. Those who lose their life will gain it. Those who seek to gain life will lose it. Or perhaps most profoundly says it this way in Matthew chapter 7. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. We often interpret that in a very heaven, future kind of way, and yet eternal life is as much a now reality as it is a then reality. But narrow is the gate that leads to life. Jesus is the gate. And when we lay our lives down 
to Jesus in what the world would say to us seems like certain defeat. What we find, though it may not turn out as we hoped, is the ultimate life that God promises us. Isn't it fascinating that the story starts out with Absalom in exile, and it ends up with the rightful king in exile. Can I tell you another story that goes a little bit like that? The Bible tells us that because of our rebellion, because of our brokenness, because of our constant pursuit of needing to be like God, be in control, be the, one, be the ones with authority, because of our sinfulness, we have been separated from God, the Scriptures tell us. We've been distanced from our Father. There is a gap between us. But the Scriptures tell us there is hope that ultimately we can be restored to God's family. And the means by which God does it is by Himself willfully entering into exile. Whereas Absalom's exile was self-inflicted, David's exile was self-imposed. And whereas your and my exile from the presence and from the loving and full life reality of a relationship with God is self-inflicted, Jesus' exile from God was self-imposed. It says in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel that David, as he's leaving the city, is marching up the Mount of Olives and he is weeping over the city. In the New Testament, we have similar passages with Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and wishing that they would understand that he was the rightful king, that he loved his kids, that he was not there to exterminate them, that though there was a brokenness in relationship, there was hope and possibility for restoration and fullness, and yet it led to his removal from them. A self-imposed exile on a cross. But in the same way as in chapter 19, we will see David victorious over his enemy. And we will see him return in marvelous majesty to Jerusalem and reaffirmed and reanointed as king over all of Israel. What seemed like sure and certain defeat for Jesus on a cross leads three days later to incredible victory over the enemy of death through his resurrection. And we long for the day when Jesus will return and be acknowledged by all of creation as the rightful king over the whole world. Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father.
What does that mean? That Jesus is the rightful king. There's this fascinating guy in the middle of the story. I mentioned him. His name's Ittai. He's a Gibeonite. He's basically what amounts to a mercenary. He's a hired hand, a warrior. He's probably signed a contract, as it were, with David to be part of his army. And when this rebellion is underway and Absalom's coming, David goes to march out and he sees Ittai coming with him. And he turns to him and says, what are you doing? We've got a contract and all, but don't come. This is, gonna, this is not going to go well for you if you come. And Ittai says, I'll be nowhere else. I'm going where my king goes. So whereas in Absalom, we had someone who was born a royal son with a royal inheritance, but through his allegiance became a rebel. We have in Ittai someone who was born a foreigner, not part of the family of God. But through his allegiance to the rightful king, becomes welcomed into the family as a son. It's what Paul would call in his New Testament letters, adoption. Being welcomed into a family. You know what's fascinating about this story about Ittai? is that he is not coerced, is he? And he's not forced, but he is compelled. You think that, right? Basically, David said, why why would you choose to come? This is going to get a little bit messy for a little while here. And I can't guarantee that things are going to either be easy or safe for you. And he basically says, go back to where you came from, right? Go back to your past. Or even says, hey, stay here and be part with the new king who's coming. Embrace some future possible reality, but not because he's coerced by David, not because he's forced by David, but because he is compelled in his heart by who David is, that David is the rightful king. In Hebrew, Ittai swears by two separate oaths that David is his king. And he lays down his life and follows him. In verse 22 of chapter 15, it says he takes his whole family with him. He's laying it all on the line. So perhaps the final question for us as we take a 30,000 foot fly over these two chapters is, what is the status of your heart this morning? Are you more Absalom or more Ittai? Is your heart more prone to wander, to rebellion, to seeking to either use God or use others or use yourself to accomplish significance and acceptance and security, power, authority, whatever it be, control in this world? Or have you truly seen in Jesus, not by coercion, not by being tricked or, or, or manipulated emotionally in a moment, but have you truly seen in Jesus by what He has done, by who He is, that He is the rightful King? And in so doing, entered into a new family, 
and laid down your life. Jesus himself promises us not that choosing this will lead to immediate pleasure and luxury of living. But in fact, sometimes hardships and oftentimes trouble. But because we know he's the rightful king and certain that it leads to the true life both already and certainly in fullness in the future, we can do no other. Remember the story of Ruth? Let me remind you of the story of Ruth. Ruth is the Old Testament uh, a woman, a Moabitess woman who's married to a, a Jewish man. Her husband dies. Her father-in-law dies. Only her mother-in-law is left. And her mother-in-law says, I'm going back to Israel. You should just go back to where you came from. My life is ruined. This doesn't seem good. And, and Ruth says, I, says, Ruth clung to her. Basically, I, I'm not going back. I'm not going to pursue some alternate future. I I am where I am. And Ruth, of course, is mentioned in the genealogy that leads to the ultimate king. Ruth, in fact, is what? A great-great-grandma of King David? Something like that. And here we have it again. Perhaps you're not Absalom. Perhaps you're more like the Israelites that were so quick to turn on David because Absalom seemed like a really good choice. Perhaps we're misled by finding hope in politics or politicians or finding hope in pursuing an American dream or securing a vocation or a significant sum of money or or whatever it may be. And I'm not suggesting any of these things are horrible in and of themselves, but I'm telling you they're not ultimate. They might lead to fleeting moments of seeing life, but they will never lead to the fullness of life that only Christ can bring. I testify to you this morning that He is worthy of your worship. That He's worthy of your praise. That in who he is, entering into a self-imposed exile for the full rescue of the world, he has proven that he is the rightful king. And the day is coming when he will return in majesty and be received by the whole world as the only rightful king that he truly is. Why wait for life then when you can have it now? Be Ittai, not Absalom. Be Ittai's children who go along with him, not the men and women at the gates who are lured away by an argument that seems convincing by a false messiah or a false king. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. It says, if anyone hears and asks me to enter, I will come in. Can I pray with you?